Uh, we're going to continue our series, uh, Foundation Series. Uh, if you've been with us, you know we're uh, teaching through our statement of faith and the different statements that are in there and diving into them that we would have a foundation uh, in Christ, uh, founded in good theology. I know when we talk about like, hey, we're going to talk about theology on Sundays, everybody gets super excited. I know you're all nerds like me and uh, you love that stuff. But we should have uh, a, a good understanding of what we believe and why we believe it and what the Word of God has to say because that should be our foundation. That's the primary way, the final authority that God has used to teach us about Him and about uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ and about who He is. So uh, I hope you are uh, taking this seriously and diving into this each week. Uh, there's definitely a lot of room for further study. Each week, we definitely do not exhaust uh, all that we could about the subject. So if something piques your interest or you feel like, wow, that's, that's a really weak area of my understanding, then certainly dive into that and learn more about it. Today, we're going to talk about the human condition. We were created and designed by God for a specific purpose. We actually, if you remember, just a few months ago, we had a whole series about this, about how we were created on purpose and for a purpose but we mess that up. Most of us, though, uh, maybe it's just me, but when we see someone, have you ever seen someone make a mistake or do something really poorly, and your first thought is, well, I could do that better. I wouldn't have messed that up if you put me in charge. I know anytime I'm not in charge, I am a very prideful person, and I tend to be very judgy and think, like, I could have done that better. I remember for me back when I was in college, I was a part of a drama worship team. I know, don't be afraid. I didn't do any of the worship side of it. Uh, they just, you know, I was just the drama and the sound guy. Uh, so, but... In this, I was, first I was obviously just a, a member of the team, and then over the, I was a part of it for three years, and uh, the second year I was like a student leader, and then the third year I was like co-leader of the team. And previously I had always thought like, man, this, this team has run so poorly, and you know, we, we could do this so much better. And then I became a leader on the team, and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is a lot of work, and no wonder that things went the way they went. Until you have the role of responsibility, have you ever had that experience where you were very critical and then you got put in charge and you were like, oh man, this is way more difficult and different than I thought it would be. I am so sorry for being so critical because there's so much more stress to this than I thought there was. We think a lot of times we could do better if given the same circumstances because we like to think that we're better than most people at most things. Uh, maybe this is just a guy thing, but I'm assuming that there are some girls that maybe feel the same way too that have that problem. Any of us think that we could have done better than Adam in the garden? Any of us thought, you know, no? Uh, yeah, let's be honest, a couple hands, yeah, there we go. Uh, the way I view it, again, this is, this is, you know, Bruce's theology, this isn't from the Bible, but uh, I think that God in His infinite wisdom, if there was a better person to take that role, they would have been created instead of us. And so Adam was literally the best of the best, in my opinion. There was nobody that could have handled that situation better than Adam and better than Eve, and God chose them, and they messed up pretty quickly. 
Uh, it's easy for us to look at, to read Scripture and look at this, the account of Adam and Eve and think, oh, man, if only I had been created by God first, then there wouldn't be sin in the world. Well, guess what? You'd have messed up too. Uh, I really, honestly, truly believe if there was a chance for success, God would have obviously given us the best chance for success, and Adam and Eve were that. It's a uh, testament to the human condition, to when we have free will. Any of you, when you got out of, uh, maybe you got out of high school and you went to college for the first time, or you moved out, uh, whenever you did move out, uh, and you were on your own, you made a few mistakes. The freedom uh, was kind of suffocating to you. You, cr- you used that freedom to do things you shouldn't have done. Uh, you used the extra time and space, the lack of somebody telling you what to do. You slept in a little longer. You went to bed like 6 a.m. because you were up playing video games. Maybe that was just my generation. But uh, we did those kind of things when we had the freedom because we could. And I think for us to have a conversation about the human condition, we have to understand sin isn't Adam's fault. We each bear the fault for our own sin, knowing that we, if given the same set of circumstances, would have failed probably more miserably than Adam did and Eve did. Uh, we bear the fault for our own sin. Though we are born with a sinful nature, we each make that decision to sin, each and every one of us. Uh, if placed in the same circumstances as somebody else, uh, we, it's also often easy to look at somebody else's circumstances and think like, wow, they're not as good as me. They're not as good a Christian. They're not as good a parent. They're not as good a grandparent. You know, we, we just do that kind of things. We, we look down. Uh, and to acknowledge, yeah, I bear responsibility for my sinful condition. Have you ever thought, though, of what it would have been like if we hadn't messed up, if we didn't sin, if we had chosen God instead of ourselves? And, and I don't mean just if we were Adam. I mean from our birth, if we had chosen God each at each and every Uh, decision moment, we chose to honor God. We chose righteousness. We chose holiness. Uh, I don't know about you, but I generally don't make it through the morning before I choose myself over God in some fashion, some way. Uh, It's hard to live an entire day where every decision we make for God. Why? Because we're human. And it's not Adam's fault. It's our fault. Today's portion of our statement of faith, it deals with the facts of the human condition what we were designed for, and where we are now because of sin. So I I want to read the portion that we're going to be covering today, and then we're going to break it into smaller pieces and talk about it. It says, man was originally created... uh, I don't think I put the whole thing in here. No, I didn't. Uh, Man was originally created in the image and likeness of God. He fell through disobedience, incurring thereby both physical and spiritual death, All men are born with a sinful nature, are separated from the life of God, and can be saved only through the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The portion of the unrepentant and unbelieving is existence forever in conscious torment, and that of the believer in everlasting joy and bliss. Again, if you want a copy of our statement of faith, you want a physical copy, we have them back on the welcome desk. Um, You can always look them up on the website as well or in the app. 
So I want to cover this first part here. Man was originally created in the image and likeness of God. In Genesis 1.27, most of us are familiar with this verse. Uh, again, reading from the English Standard Version, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what does it mean to be created in the image and likeness of God? I lost a few hours this week to this question. Uh, as I just kind of went down that rabbit hole and was reading some of uh, the church fathers' writings on it and, and some of the great theologians. Uh, and it's an interesting uh, dive into the subject um, because uh, it can mean a lot of things. Does it mean that we look like Him? Is when you read this passage, when you think about the idea that you were created in the image of God, do you immediately go to, well, we must look like God? Is it about physical appearance alone? Is that what this verse is saying? Does it include that we were created in the essence? Uh, is that part of the image? Are we included in the intellect of God? Are we created with the authority of God? Is that part of the image that we're given here? See, uh, if you do a little research, uh, you know I don't jump too much into the Greek and the Hebrew and all of that stuff. Uh, in this portion of Scripture in Genesis, this would have been Hebrew or Aramaic, I think Hebrew for this specific one. But the word image is lacking to understand what exactly this verse is saying. It's the best word we can come up with, um, that we were created in the image of God, but there's a lot more to this. It's actually, if you do jump into this topic and you like to research, you'll notice it's a highly debated topic. And I'll give you a spoiler alert, I don't really have a definitive answer for you as to what exactly it means that we are created in the image of God. I would argue that it does have something to do with the physical similarity of God uh, because the word that they use here for image does have that uh, connotation. It does mean physical uh, appearance as well, uh, but only in the way that a circle has the likeness of planet earth. When a kid draws the earth, it, you would obviously draw a circle, but no one would look at that and go, wow, that looks exactly like the earth. Uh, no, it doesn't. Uh, and that's my argument with this is that while we are created in the image of God, he is so vast, so powerful, so amazing, so difficult to grasp that we are, I think, there's a closer similarity between a kid or anybody drawing a, just a circle and the actual planet Earth uh, because God is so beyond us. And if you were with us a couple weeks ago, we got real nerdy and we talked about how uh, the different dimensions and a two-dimensional being and a three-dimensional world. And, and I do believe that God would be a multi-dimensional being. And uh, so we would only have just the, the vaguest, even the closest similarity we can have to God would pale in comparison to who God is and how awesome and amazing he is. And so by no means do I think that you know, God is, even if we consider the Middle Eastern image that God is a, a darker-skinned, brown hair kind of person, that's not the way the Bible depicts him. Uh, he is beyond us, even though we might be created in his image. So uh, to sum up this part, I would say, yes, it does have to do with image, but there's also more to it. Um, there's, no, there's no question that in the entire uh, animal kingdom and everything that humans are distinct. 
They're different. We have the ability to reason, to do certain things with our mind. We have intellect, uh, and I think that that's a a reflection of God. We have spirits. uh, We have an extra part to us, to our being, and I believe that's also a reflection of God. We have Uh, There's a lot of aspects to us that I think are a part of that reflection, that image of us, Um, but I think it should also bring us uh, confidence to know that we're not. uh, You might look in the mirror and you might not like what you see. You may even be very critical of it. But to look at yourself, to to view yourself and, and realize I'm made in the image of God. God can't be looking at us and think, oh, man, I messed that one up. That's just not who he is. We're created in his image, and whether we're happy with our physical appearance or whatever it is that when we look in the mirror we are critical or when we think about ourselves we're critical, to remind ourselves we are the image bearers of Christ, of God. That should change the way we live. The next part of our statement of faith says, He fell through disobedience, incurring thereby both physical and spiritual death. All men are born with a sinful nature. This comes from a verse that most of us probably know, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is part of what I was talking about earlier this morning, though. Though Adam, through Adam, sin was brought into the world, we are each guilty of our own sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. Uh, any of us who have been saved uh, later in life or, or after we you know, spent some significant amount of time doing our own thing, we can attest that the life that we lived before knowing Christ, that that wasn't life. We know what it felt like to live without Christ, and none of us would exp- explain that as like, well, yeah, you know, it was great. Everything was really good, And then I just, you know, the icing on the cake became Jesus. Like, no, that's not transformation. When you come to know Jesus, you're like, man, I was living in black and white. And then I experienced color. Some of you actually, you know, you were through that generation where you had a black and white TV, and then you got a color TV, and everything changed. Uh, We've watched The Wizard of Oz, and we know that difference. But that's kind of what it was like. Before we knew Jesus, we lived a certain way. We were the center of our universe, and then we came to know Christ. And everything changed. Life, it had meaning now. It had purpose. We had hope, and everything changed. Why? It's because before we knew Jesus, we were dead spiritually. Some of us think that when we die, we die spiritually. But you were dead spiritually from the moment you were born. That's part of the human condition. The Bible is very clear that from the moment that Adam sinned, they died spiritually. And that's why we call it, you ever wonder why we call it being born again? It's not because we're physically born again. It's because we come alive spiritually. That's the second birth that we experience is we are born into. When you are born as a baby, uh, we don't believe in reincarnation or any of that garbage. So we don't believe that we're born again physically. We're born for the first time when we're born as a human being. And so when, uh, the, when we come to know Jesus, that's our spiritual birth, that we become alive spiritually. We all know that the destiny of humans uh, is physical death at some point. 
Um, but each of us also needs to acknowledge we were born into spiritual death. That part of us, that aspect of us, was not alive when we were born. It is only when we accept Christ as our Savior that that life comes alive. And uh, taking that from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and are separated from the life... Did I miss something up there? By grace you have been saved and are separated from the life of God and can be saved only through the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our condition. Dead in our trespasses and sins. Uh, why were we not able to serve God before we were a Christian? Because we were dead spiritually, and it was only in that moment that we became alive. Uh, it's, I think, in conversation with believers, uh, there's a, a misconception that uh, we are somewhat alive spiritually when we're born, and we just kind of bloom into greater life when we become a Christian, but that's not true. We literally come alive. That's why it's called born again. We are born spiritually now, and now we both live physically and spiritually. It's why Paul in Romans says, you know, now that he's a believer, he has this battle between the flesh and the spirit, and it seems this war is constantly waging, and it will constantly wage, because before, your flesh was the only person in the ring, and so it always won. We always chose ourselves. And then we come alive spiritually, and now there's this battle that happens between the flesh and the spirit. And now these things will wage war for the rest of our lives, and the enemy will always use that to shame you, discourage you, make you feel less than. But that should encourage us that there's a battle that is being waged now, that now the flesh has somebody to fight. And that's the spirit that God has put inside of us. And we've come alive spiritually. And so now our sin weighs on us and it troubles us. And we don't want to be that way. We want, like Paul says, he, he wants to do the right things, even though for some reason he always seems to do the wrong things. And his body, you know, he seems to have this where he wants to do the right thing and he doesn't do the right thing, but he doesn't want to do this, but he ends up doing it. That's the battle that we wage now because we are spiritually alive. The next part of our statement of faith says, are separate. Oh, that's what I got into. That's why I got messed up. Sorry. Are separated from the life of God and can be saved only through the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I need to be better with my notes here. I don't even know what my notes say. So this is part of our statement of faith, not the ending to that verse. That's why I got so confused. This is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 23. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And I just want to pause here for a moment because this is what we've been talking about. By a man came death, that's Adam, but by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. That's why if you are a nerd like me and you like to read theological stuff, you'll see Christ often to re- referred to as the second Adam because through one came death, through another came life. But for 
For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, when at his coming those who belong to Christ. Our sin required payment. We've talked a little bit about this in this series, uh, this idea of justice. Uh, justice requires payment. It's not uh, just for sin to just be ignored. Um, God would not be a just God if he simply acted like we didn't sin. If he just said, ah, no big deal, don't worry about it, just come on into heaven. That, that's not possible for a just God. Some of us want that. We want it to just be brushed under the rug, but that's not justice because when we sin, somebody is wronged. Many times it's against ourself. Uh, the Bible talks about sins against our own body, but often sin wrongs others, and so there requires payment for that because somebody has been wronged. Uh, I've used this illustration before, and I'll use it again this morning. If someone you know God forbid, hope this never happens, but if someone you know was, was, say, killed by a drunk driver, would you be okay if you went to court and that individual was found guilty by a jury and a judge and that judge declared no sentence because that would be mean? How would you feel about that? Someone you cared about, a loved one, their life was taken because of something like that, a choice that someone made. And the judge says, oh, yeah, definitely guilty. But, I don't know, life in prison seems rough. We're just going to let you go. Don't do it again. I don't know about you, but I would be a little upset about that. I would be bothered. Why? Because that's not justice. We would want justice. Maybe, you know, hopefully steer away from revenge, but we would want justice. There was a wrong that has occurred, and a price must be paid. Justice requires the payment of the offense. And we can only be saved by our sins being paid for by someone worthy to pay those sins, to pay for our sin. And that same analogy we just used, would you accept the person who had killed someone for drunk driving that their sentence be paid? Someone came forward and said, I'll pay for their sentence but that person was already in jail for life for killing somebody else. Is that justice? No. That's why we can't die for other people. We can't save others by paying for their sin. Why? Because we're already guilty. We're already paying the penalty for our sin, and that's life in eternity, or a lack of life in eternity, that we would live in hell for eternity. That's the payment. We're already guilty of that, so we can't take somebody else's burden on us. That's why Christ Jesus had to come, and he lived a perfect life. He was not guilty, therefore could pay the penalty for our sins. He could step forward and say, yes, you are guilty, yet I'm going to pay for that. That's justice, to declare us guilty because we are, but then beyond justice is his love and his grace and his mercy. And so he steps forward and accepts our payment on himself. The next part of our statement of faith says, The portion of the unrepentant and unbelieving is existence forever in conscious torment. Uh, we just mentioned, uh, obviously, if you don't know Jesus, if, if you are guilty, then your end is exactly this. The unrepentant and unbelieving is existence forever in conscious torment. Yes, 
we believe in a literal hell for unbelievers. Uh, it seems odd that we have to point that out, but in today's culture, uh, there are, it's, it's increasingly popular uh, to ignore the existence of hell, to act as if this isn't a real concept. Um, was reading, again, lost a few hours on this one this week, uh, was reading articles from the other side of this argument because I thought, well, you know, what is out there? You know, I want to learn more about this. And so reading an article from Time Magazine and from a couple other places about how, you know, Jesus never, you know, the Bible really doesn't talk about hell. Jesus never talks about hell in the New Testament. And as I'm reading this, I'm just sh- shocked by the lack of uh, evidence or the lack of actual facts as they try to explain away the realities of hell. And they're like, well, yeah, the Bible talks about this. And it's like, yeah, that, that's, that's hell. But it's not really hell because it's this. Like, nah, it's not true at all. Uh, and the jumps that they make and the leaps and the dancing they have to do to get away from the very real reality of hell. Some want to believe there isn't an actual place of torment for those who don't believe. Because, the argument generally goes, how could a loving God send people to hell? And it's such a flawed argument because he has, yes, declared us guilty, but he has stepped off, the, off of his throne and offered to pay our penalty. And we have to say no. We're the ones who reject that. He has literally come off and said, I will pay the price. How could anybody look at that scenario and say, well... What a jerk. You're sending everybody to hell. He has paid it. He died for it. He lived among us. He showed us how to live. He did all this so we could have abundant life. And then for us to turn around and say, well, how can a loving God send people to hell? See, those, those who want to ignore hell, they'd rather believe that those who don't believe in Jesus either cease to exist upon death, that's the, called soul sleep, uh, or just that everyone goes to heaven Uh, whether they want to or not, that God's just basically going to force everybody into heaven. The problem is that the Bible clearly teaches about hell many times in many ways uh, and makes it very clear that there is a conscious torment hell in the Bible. Uh, Though you, again, won't, if you go into the Greek and Hebrew, you're not going to find the word hell. Uh, That's obviously an English word that we translate uh, multiple different references at times, depending on the translation you're reading, into hell. But different ways that it refers to hell is the bottomless pit, refers to it as Gehenna, uh, Sheol, uh, and some would again try to argue, oh, you know, some of these like Gehenna, like that was just a pit outside of Jerusalem and, and all of these things. In Jude, though, uh, it says, wait, where did I get, did I skip? I did skip Revelation 21.8, sorry. Uh, that's where, in, if you look at the statement of faith, the reference is from Revelation 21.8. says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Kind of hard to determine after that, we're all going to heaven. I don't know how you get there. Jude 6 and 7, though, says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual morality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example of, uh, by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yeah, the Bible doesn't talk about hell. Unless you read it, and then it does. 
very clearly and very plainly explains what is the portion for those who don't believe. Uh, in Mark, Jesus himself says, in Mark chapter 9, verses 47 and 48, And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Uh, this is an obvious reference to that, uh, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Uh, again, seems pretty clear to me. If you just read it, it's there. Uh, and then Jesus, uh, I think one of the clearest teachings that Jesus uses to talk about hell is in the story of Lazarus, which we find in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 26. It says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you, that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. So, some would argue, I remember back when I was in uh, the Jehovah Witness religion, I grew up in that, if you didn't know that, uh, I would read a portion of Scripture like this and go, this is confusing, because they teach in soul sleep. Either you go into what is called the new system, uh, only the 144,000 go to heaven, so you get, you get put on the new earth, the new system. Uh, but if you don't, if you're not a Jehovah Witness, then you just cease to exist. They believe in that soul sleep. And I thought, well, this is odd, because the Bible doesn't seem to teach that. Uh, and I was told, well, this is a parable. And so some people look to this and believe this is a parable of Jesus. But if you study Jesus' parables, you'll notice there's a very specific thing about Jesus' parables. Nobody ever has a name. Because in his parables, they're just stories to teach a point. So there would be pointless to give people names. So the fact that Lazarus has a name is obviously a clear indication this is a true story that Jesus is telling. This is an actual account of something which occurred. And so Jesus is telling us that this rich man, uh, why would he want just, the, uh, you know, just a drop of water? Uh, because fire's hot. Uh, I'm just going to assume that from the story as Jesus is talking about hell and the many different ways he explains hell, uh, that there's, there's conscious torment. That's why we believe that, because the Bible teaches it again and again and again. If you read that Time Magazine article about hell, you'll notice they don't mention this. They don't want to talk about Jesus explaining a story of someone in hell because it doesn't go with the narrative. Uh, so this would be a really, really strange story to tell if hell didn't exist. What would be the point? What, what would Jesus benefit? What would be the teaching point here if hell did, doesn't exist? And when Jesus teaches himself on the final judgment in Matthew 25, he says in verses 31 to 41, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd se separates the sheep from the goats. 
and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when, when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Again, clear teaching on the end judgment of mankind. If we know Jesus, if we have a relationship with him, if we are alive spiritually, we enter into eternal life. If we end this life dead spiritually, then we remain dead spiritually for the remainder of eternity. That's how it is. That's what the Bible teaches. For those who find it incompatible with a loving God to send people to hell, remember, Christ has already paid for their sin and offers full payment. He requires nothing from us in a material way. We don't have to buy our way. We don't have to attend our way. The thief on the cross himself enters heaven with nothing to offer Jesus. He spends the last few moments of his life hanging on a cross and dying a worthy death for somebody who had committed the crimes. We don't know what he was all guilty of, but he was suffering the just payment for his sin. And yet Jesus tells him, you will be with me today in glory. It doesn't require much. They only need to accept it. That's it. That's what's so unique about Christianity, why it is the gospel because it's so simple, and it confuses people, it angers people, it, it, it creates so much animosity because we want to earn things. We want to pay for something. We want to feel like we've earned it, and it's such a humble religion because God doesn't require all this stuff of us. He simply asks that we receive the gift of salvation. It is a gift, and we only need to accept it. Our statement of faith goes on and says, and that of the believer in everlasting joy and bliss. Hell and heaven are very real places. Uh, if you, again, if you were with us in our uh, nerdy dimensional conversation, uh, I, my personal, again, um, we're stepping outside of good theology and entering the realm of Bruce theology. Uh, I believe that heaven exists in another dimension that we cannot see. Uh, or experience because we're not uh, part of that dimensional space. But uh, I believe that as I think the Bible indicates that heaven is all around us and we can bring heaven to earth uh, by uh, Jesus' model of prayer it encourages us actually to do that, to pray that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, but they're very real places. And I, and I use the word places uh, creatively, I think, because I don't know that in our dimensional understanding that hell is a three-dimensional space. I don't know, but what I do know is it's real, and I also know that heaven itself is real. Like our statement of faith says, those who do not believe 
in Christ, they spend eternity in hell, and those who believe spend eternity in heaven. It comes from Matthew 25, 46, which says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. But what does eternal life look like? Do we just like end this world and we're, uh, you know, the, do the Jehovah Witnesses have it right? Do we just get put on another earth that's all perfect and, and, and good and we just continue to live out? We continue to do our nine to five job and, you know, continue to live that out. But now we're in heaven somehow. And so we just do that for eternity. Um, when I first came to know Christ in the little Baptist church, uh, the, the picture was given to me that like we just sit around all day and, and sing holy, holy, holy. And I'm like, I don't know, that seems kind of boring to me. Uh, you know, I understand I'm in heaven, that's great, but like, I, first off, I can't sing, and second, Jesus isn't going to want to hear me sing holy, holy, holy for the rest of eternity. He's going to kick me out. Uh, it just seemed weird to me. So it's like, well, what is eternal life? Not many people dive into that. We think about, we acknowledge it, we hope in it, but we don't know much about it, which I think is odd because we're going to spend a lot of time there. Hopefully, you will. You'll be with us. But in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 4, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. It goes on in, in Revelation 21, verse 22, into uh, chapter 22, verse 5. It says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Though the middle of the street of the city also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. What a picture of eternity. The idea of eternal life, and life not like you know it, like actual life, lived in the presence of God, surrounded in the presence of God, where you literally don't need light sources anymore, because God is the light, and we live in that. Have you ever just sat and thought, like, that's the hope of your salvation? Have you ever thought and considered the two, heaven and hell, and thought, yes, I, I get this. I get to experience heaven. I get to live in this perfect utopia where there is peace, where there's no more sorrow, where there's no more pain. But my neighbors, 
who I don't talk to because it's uncomfortable, they spend eternity in conscious torment. What is keeping me from letting them know about Jesus? See, that's kind of the difference I love about kids and adults. For kids, they talk about Jesus because they absolutely love him, because they're excited about him, because they want their friends to know about him. For adults, we can process hell and eternity to a degree, and we can hopefully feel compelled because of the eternal destination of man to say, man, I need to get out of my comfort zone. It doesn't matter if I feel comfortable about this. It doesn't matter if, if, I'm, if I look weird, if I look awkward, or if, if I say the wrong thing. I've got to do something. Hell is real, and that's where they're going because they don't know Jesus. I can't just sit here and think it's okay to just retire from Christianity because now I know Jesus. That's the, what Scripture gives us, the revelations that different individuals have of heaven and of that dimension, whatever it is, I, I just know it will pale in comparison. Have you ever tried to take a picture of a sunset or, you know, when the, lately it's happened a couple times where like the, the sky turns like completely orange in the evening and it's so cool and you take a picture like, what is that? That doesn't look anything like what I'm seeing with my eyeballs. It doesn't look anything like that. Or you take that picture of the sunset and you try to show people and you're like, you, got it. You, sh- you should have been there because this doesn't just do it justice. I mean, that to me is as awesome as the scripture is. It's, it's only words. It can't give us that full picture of what heaven is, of how amazing it is, how glorious it will be. I just know what, the moment we step into it, so many things that we prioritize today will not matter in the least the moment we step into heaven, all of the things we fight and scrape for, all the things that we complain about and we're spending our money on and putting as priorities, we'll step into heaven and we'll never think about them again. And yet there are things which just don't take priority, which we don't take seriously, which just don't rise up there on our priority list. We'll step into heaven and we'll say, oh man, I wish. I was having a conversation with somebody yesterday was my brother's wedding was pretty awesome. Got to officiate my brother's wedding. And I was having a conversation with someone about uh, what I would consider to be a, a more of a legalistic view on something. And I just said, man, I, I, I don't know. I feel like I, at the end of my life, I'm not going to be worried with how many points I made with my life. I'm going to be more concerned with how many people I loved, how many people I communicated the love of Jesus to. Yeah, you know what? Some people are going to get the wrong idea about it because I go to places, and I, and I spend time with people. But that sounds a whole lot like Jesus. They were always bothered by the, what seemed like him supporting so many different things because he spent so much time with sinners. He partied with them. He spent time with them. He was in their homes. He did things with them. They, he, just all the things that Jesus did is why the religious people were so bothered by him. Because he seemed to choose to love people over making a point so often. He didn't water down the gospel. He didn't compromise in any way. But man, he ticked off the religious people. And so often we can let our, our stuff, our legalism get in the way of loving people. We can say, oh, well, they, they're into that. Okay, do they need Jesus? I mean, honestly, that's really the only question. Do they need Jesus? Who's going to go? 
Christina was talking about this morning with the kids. Beautiful are the feet of those who take the gospel. Once we stand in the unobstructed presence of God, once everything which creates anxiety and worry in our life has faded away, we will realize what our walk with Jesus was all about. In that moment, my guess is you will either be slammed with regret of all of the choices you made or just enjoy of how much of your life you lived for Jesus, just celebrating all of the wonderful opportunities you took to let people know about Jesus because I can't imagine in that moment that anything else will really matter. Our cars, our homes, our, our, our vacation homes, our, our job, our, all these things, our hobbies, none of that will matter. But we don't have to wait until that day to experience heaven. When Jesus gave us his model of prayer, he encourages us to invite God's will onto earth now, not just once we die. Matthew 6, 9 to 10. It says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what this prayer means. Bring your kingdom and your will to the earth now. That's what's awesome about being a Christian is we get to live Little parts of heaven here on earth. If you've ever been in, in, in a moment, whether it was a worship time or a prayer time or just with other believers, and man, the presence of God enters that moment and you experience heaven on earth. I don't know that we can get it fully, but when you can get like, I don't know, 80% unobstructed presence of God, there's nothing like that when you invite his presence, when we live so in that moment with Jesus and, and, and with the Holy Spirit that we experience heaven on earth, there's nothing that compares. That's how we experience heaven this side of earth. I think it was last week we talked about the Holy Spirit. Man, you, you're not gonna experience heaven on earth without him, without giving over control, power to him, without living fully in the Spirit, without being filled by the Spirit. So what does all this mean for us? If nothing else, the realities of the human condition motivate me to tell others about Christ. Often I, I, I'm, I, I sit and think about, man, heaven is real, and I am looking so forward to that day. But hell is also very, very real. And the people in my family, the people in my neighborhood, the people in my kids' school, the people that I know that don't know Jesus, that is very real of where they will spend eternity knowing those things it makes me feel the need to get over my uncomfortable feelings to tell others about jesus i, I don't have a choice if these realities are real if the truth of the word of god is true then i don't have a choice because i i, I might only be one percent compassionate but that's enough to propel me to places that I'm uncomfortable to tell people about Jesus because of how real hell and heaven are. If we can think about the horrors of hell and just sit back and do nothing about the lostness in Dubois, chances are pretty good we haven't actually experienced the hope we profess. To know the love of Jesus and do nothing about those who know nothing about him 
I don't know how it's possible. So my question I leave us with, with this week is what will you do this week to ensure as many people as possible spend eternity in the everlasting joy and bliss our statement of faith talks about? It's not theoretical, but what will you do this week? What conversations will you have? What uncomfortable moments will you overcome? What proactive steps will you take to ensure that people know about this awesome Jesus we talk about? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your love for me. I thank you that there there were those faithful to tell me about your love, to show me that I didn't just hear about it, but I experienced it. And just like our vision statement says, then the, the love of Christ was ignited in me, and it propelled me into a totally different life than what I was destined to before I knew you. Lord, there are so many in this town who do not know you, who don't know what it's like to live with hope, who don't know what it's like to wake up and think about the God of creation and and to be able to sit and think positively about eternity. There are so many who live in constant hopelessness who actually wish death upon themselves because they live with so little hope. And then there are those of us who sit comfortable in our homes, who know the love of Jesus, who for eternity will live in this utopia of bliss and perfect joy. Lord, would we not feel guilt, but would we feel love compelling us to action Today, this week, and the rest of our lives, would the moment we step into heaven, would we just burst into tears thanking you that we had been found faithful? Would we be excited to see the hundreds and possibly thousands of people whose story we were a part of because we considered you a priority in our life? Lord, I pray that you would bless each and every person here and those watching God that we would be found faithful with your gospel and we would live lives that lead others to your kingdom. We can't make them make a decision, but we can get them to that place. Would you enable us to do that? And our kids as well. As they enter these schools, Lord, would you bless them with passion, with boldness? Would you give them the words to speak? Because we know the message is so simple. But would you help them to be the awesome evangelists we know them to be? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, have a great week.